John Corshaw, I'm so excited that you are with me on 20 Questions With. I interviewed you years and years ago for my old BBC Five Minutes With show. And then we took to the stage together in Salisbury. And we had, oh, well, I had an enormous amount of fun. And you make me laugh a lot. And you're a wonderful performer. And you just, I think you have such a sort of friendly presence in the public space. And you bring a lot of joy and happiness to people. So that's really why, quite apart from the genius of your of your impressions, although it all goes hand in hand. So all, for all those reasons, that's why I'm really excited to have you with me on 20 Questions With. Oh, well, for all of those all of those wonderful things, thank you very much indeed. I do try to do all of those things as best I can. I think we should really. I do. That's what I set out to do as far as possible. Uh, so it's very, very kind of you to say, I'm humbled. Before we even start, before we get going, I'm humbled. Question number one is, mm-hmm. how did you get into impressions? There's a rather lovely story. If, if you look yourself up online, there's a lovely story about how you got into them in the first place. But I wonder whether this is true. It, it, it probably is. I think uh, growing up in Lancashire, I was surrounded by so many characters. Everyone uh, in the street and my parents, friends, you know, they all sort of sport like Fred Dibner or, you know, that kind of thing. And they were full of character. You know, sometimes words are elongated. Sometimes they'd be sped up. Um but I used to love copying people and usually around, uh, you know, sitting around the dinner table on a Sunday or whenever it might have been. And I just often just chirp in with something. And people seem to laugh and smile. I thought, this is quite good. Seems favourable to the general atmosphere. So I carried on doing it. And that was just my first awareness of it. Although it was never an intention then as a job or anything like that. But yeah, th- that would have been the first moment of when I sort of rather enjoyed doing other people's voices and, a fascination of character rooted then. When you were a boy, did you start doing impressions of famous people? A little bit. I, I used to watch Mike Yarwood on Saturday nights and uh, I used to notice the people he did. You know, Albert Steptoe, he would do, you know, his face and go, I thought he must have some, he must have some amazing muscles in his fizzog to bend it like that. Um, and I used to love watching Mike Yarwood, who I admire so much because he he was the first to have all of the technology at the time, multi-cameras, split screens, the ability to talk to yourself and so on. And he just had that instinct to really make that sing. And he was the first big time TV impressionist. And I think he showed the way that everyone has followed since then, really. You kind of parachute into our lives. So you, you're you're so busy pretending to be other people that we don't always necessarily, we don't necessarily know that much about you. And I'm not an invasive interviewer, as you probably know, but I'm, I'm curious to know whether you, looking back at your childhood, whether that, that was a, a happy time. I mean, there were all, we all have ups and downs at the very least, don't we? But did you, did you have a sort of interesting, engaged, happy, broadly happy childhood, spending a lot of time outside, inside? Tell us what it was like. It was, it was very nice. I think growing up in the 1970s was a very nice time to, to grow up. You know, you would play outside on, a, on, your, on your bike, I used to be fascinated by butterflies. I used to, you know, where I lived, there's lots of country trails and farmland and so on. So walking along and seeing all the different species and I'd sort of make mental notes of them and tick them off in my spotter's guide book. That was my way of collecting football stickers in a sense and just a connection with nature. Um, going into the backyard, uh, you know, the back garden by the shed in the evening as well, looking up at the stars. Um, it was, it was, it was a very, the seventies was a lovely time to grow up. Everything was sort of like, had a bronze sort of hue to it, a sort of a sepia tone. And it was, it was very fond. And I I look back with it very, with with a great uh, deal of 
happiness. It does bother me the degree to which people can be phone addicted now and so on. And uh, you see perhaps certain elements of people's personalities and the ability to think for yourself just sort of slightly ebbing away a bit. We must be cautious. We must be cautious. Sure, the constant information is very handy. And there can be great benefits, but we must exercise caution. I said that as Obi-Wan Kenobi to try and make it sound wise. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh out loud because that, I, in my experience, having interviewers laugh is just irritating. So people could do the laughing themselves when they listen. But, but what you describe as having with butterflies, I had and have with birds. And, and it's a wonderful key, bird watching, and I'm sure butterfly watching as well, butterfly observation, a wonderful key into the natural world because it enables you to be fascinated by what's around you. I want to know as well about childhood, whether doing impressions kind of made you popular. Did you find it serving a purpose for you in school amongst your friends? Was it a reaction to anything? How naturally did it come to you and what, what sort of, what did it do for you? Uh, yes, it, it led to, uh, it led to quite a lot of fun. I, I can remember uh, an early performance, as it were, around about 1977, late 1977, 1978. I was 10 years old around about this time at St. Anne's Junior School in Ormskirk. And I was able to do, um, I was able to do an impression of Elvis. Um, and I used to borrow my brother's American belt buckle and put my shirt collar up. And I, I could do this, I, I could do, um, you know, I was only nine or 10, but I could do Elvis. And then a few, a few months later, I, I had a brace fitted on my teeth, which, and then I, I, I dropped out of being able to do it. You know, when, when you've got a brace and it affects your speech, you know, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. It doesn't really work quite as well. But I must see if I can get it back in some way or another. But I used to, I used to be asked to do uh, impersonations of Elvis, usually just by the, the, the school electrical substation. It sort of formed a stage. It was a bit like a bandstand. And, uh, yeah, that, that made for a lot of fun. Uh, I remember once there was the uh, the end of year singing competition in the school hall and we had to prepare a piece and do it. And lots of the well-behaved kids, you know, sang some very lovely songs like uh, I'd Rather Be a Hammer Than a Nail by Simon and Garfunkel and All Things Bright and Beautiful, you know, these lovely songs and, very, and me being slightly rebellious and wanting to think of something from a different angle. I sang That's All Right, by, uh, That's All right Mama by Elvis. Uh, his first sort of hit. Um, and I think it was sort of slightly condemned, really. I was voted last by the judging teachers. Maybe they just didn't approve, but I thought it was good. And it, I quite enjoyed the sense of being a people's champion. So this was me as a 10-year-old in school. <laughs> the story I was thinking of that I'd read in terms of how you got into impressions as a career was that I think, because you worked in local radio for a while, didn't you? And I think I read that a receptionist kind of encouraged you to get involved. Yeah, that was that was very true. That was, um, let's see, I was 21 at that time. This was at Viking Radio in Hull. And uh, Anne-Marie, the receptionist at uh, Viking FM, who's still a great friend um, even today. Um, and I'd done, I think that particular week, I'd done an interview with Lenny Henry, uh, who had been doing a show at the Hull New Theatre, and he, he came on and we just had this lovely rapport. And I was so inspired to be talking to him that we both had a sort of a play about with voices. And he said, you should send a tape to Spitting Image. They're always looking for people. You should send a tape in. 
So I did follow Lenny's advice. But that same week, uh, Anne-Marie, the receptionist, um, said, um, I, I can remember the scene now that the, the, it was torrential rain in the car park. So I didn't leave straight away. I stayed a little bit and just had a chat with Anne-Marie. And she said um, in this gorgeous whole accent of hers, you know, don't waste the fact you can do these voices. Don't waste it. Make that your job instead of talking in between Madonna records, you know. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, maybe I should do that. Maybe I should take that aim. So I can remember that week, this encouragement from Anne-Marie in reception and from Lenny Henry in an earlier interview. And it was one of those moments where you think to yourself, right then, perhaps I will. And I did. That's how it played out. Talk to us about the difference, John, between doing impressions on the radio, perhaps for which you're most famous, and you've done a lot of that, mm. and doing them on screen. Um, on screen, you get the chance to do lots of visual jokes. You can have... Um, you know, if you're doing Tom Baker on screen, well, you know, the eyes can go like this, you know. Or perhaps, Mr. Pertwee, you have that kind of, uh, I've reversed the polarity. It's all about the facial expression. Um, you, always, you always copy the facial expression of the character you're doing, whether it's on radio or TV, just to squeeze the right sound out, so to speak. But on screen, you get the chance to see that as well. And you can also have other sight gags, body language, pauses, uh, the costume. Ozzy Osbourne pushing his hair away like that, you know. There's a, there's another box of toys you can have during, um, you know, on, on screen. On radio, it can be very much more conversational. It's perhaps easier to do, you know, things a little bit more, a little bit more conspiratorial, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, different sensibilities that each medium will will give you. Have you investigated whether it's a physical attribute or a physical talent being able to do what you do? Or is it more of a mental thing? Is it perhaps even an intellectual thing? Is it is it something that comes from enormous, I'm sure enormous amounts of practice is inevitably part of it. But if your average boy or girl at school started trying to do impressions and did it for long enough, would, would most of them be able to get somewhere with it? Is it something we can all become quite good at? Or have you looked into the art form? Yes, it's you never quite notice what you will register first with a, a particular character. It could be something to do with body language. It could be a sense of how they think. It You'll be attracted to something first. Um, and then the rest will follow and it will become the finished, completed picture when it just sits right in your consciousness and you can, you've got enough familiarity that you've built up that you can just play it out, knowing which bits to emphasise and exaggerate to add in the humour. Um, and you can, you can just let it play out like that. But be it physical, be it a fascination with how they think, how their mind works, you never quite notice. With someone like, um, say, for instance, Chris Eubank, the thing you notice with him first is, is his curiosity, his intellect. And how this makes him very, very measured. And he speaks in a way with a philosophy that is very fascinating, looking into the depth and what's behind a certain thing. So with him, it would be that. Um, I, I love the era of the 90s boxers. Um, you know, with Frank Bruno, it would be a certain sense of optimism, you know, in a very sort of friendly kind of way, and a sort of, yeah, nodding of the head and throwing in the catchphrases. Nice one, Harry. Yeah, you know, you will see on Saturday, you know, what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to send body popping. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great happiness to Frank. Um, 
Who else? Let me think. First thing you noticed with Tony Blair, for example. Once again, it's a body language thing with him. Very fixed, very rigid. Almost as though it is stop frame animation as created by Ray Harryhausen in, you know, one million years BC. <laughs> you know, there's times when he moves, which is a bit like the, you know, almost like the, uh, you know, the sledgehammer video of Peter Peter Gabriel or Peter Gabriel, as I once, you know, mispronounced it. <laughs> you never quite know what it's going to be. Um, I think that's the fascination with character and little bits that you can stretch to make it amusing. I can imagine listeners actually being able to almost see you as you do those impressions because <laughs> because it is so visual as well. I, I'm just curious whether there's a science to it, whether the, whether your vocal cords or your vocal range is more extensive or more flexible than the rest of us. I wonder, I'd be, in, I'd be very interested if, there, if there's been some research into that, but I, I suppose I'd that probably very, hasn't. I, 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 I had a conversation once, I think it was at... Um, at um, an event of the Royal Astronomical Society, an award ceremony. And I think I've been doing a bit of uh, Carl Sagan, Brian Cox and Patrick Moore at the occasion. And uh, somebody from a university came across and said, could we study? We'd like to study what you are doing and see if it is brain patterns and vocal patterns and see if there is anything different. Um, but uh, <laughs> I didn't hear back. I think it just got lost in the ether. It may happen in the future. It would be fascinating to know. What stands out about Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox? Because the other Brian Cox, of course, is, is the star of Succession, one of the stars of Succession. <laughs> yes, I, w- I wonder what wonders of the universe with that Brian Cox would be like. like oh, the universe is too big. It's too big. It's too far away. What's the use of that? <laughs> I love the picture of the two of them side by side. Uh, I think Brian, uh, science, uh, f- physics Brian Cox, tweeted a picture of the two of them together, the, the science Brian and the actor Brian. And somebody replied, uh, but the first Lord of time must be obeyed <laughs> to bring in the Doctor <laughs> Who references, inevitably. Professor Brian Cox, I think he has a sense of, not to use the pun, but the wonder of the universe and trying to convey just how fascinating and profound this really is beyond our mundane lives and the day-to-day. If we think the elements in our body, you've got carbon, you've got oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen. These are the building blocks of life that we are made of. The universe is made of the same thing. So in terms of us being part of the universe, more profoundly, the universe is part of us. And that makes us very special. <laughs> you can say things inspiringly. It's utterly brilliant. Do you leave women to women? Or do you sometimes dabble in doing female impressions? Yes, yeah, so if there's a certain timbre there. Usually we do. Usually it would be, you know, Jen Ravens or Deborah Stevenson, Jess Robinson, Naomi McDonald, Christina Bianco. Um yeah, they would they would t- tend to do the female voices. But yeah, there's one or two that you might be able to uh you might be able to do. I'm just trying to think. I once sort of did a falsetto and Widdicombe. Uh, you know, a lot of blinky. That kind of thing. You know, you can sustain it for a few words. I rather like the tone of Mariella Frostrump. There's that kind of, you know, a lovely sort of, a, you know, that sort of growl there, you know, which is very, uh, which is rather marvellous. Sort of a sense of honour Blackman, perhaps, that kind of timbre. So occasionally, but it, it would usually be a little more um, you know, caricatured a little bit as elegantly as possible. 
Unless you see your head from Mes Dawson, then you can just do it. <laughs> How many people do you tend to add each year? Uh, yeah, they keep uh, they keep you know popping along. Rishi Sunak is rather. If you start at Tony Blair and then sort of smooth it out and make it, I will do everything in my power. I will work day in, day out to serve you. And if we need to put the national debt on my wife's credit card, then so be it. You know, I wouldn't have said it, but he's 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 resigned and that's fine. You know, a, a sort of a more syrupy Blair. Um, Jordan Peterson is uh, an intriguing character that uh, I rather enjoy doing these days. I like to sort of take his sense of logic and apply it to things that you wouldn't expect him to. You know, the idea of uh, Red Riding Hood or, or Goldilocks and the porridge. You know, this is porridge theft. So why there would be that sympathy there. I think we need to think long and hard about that. Otherwise, it's not going to work out. It's not going to work out. <laughs> There's a lovely sense of logic there. Apply it to comical things. It's quite charming. Do you enjoy doing people from other countries as much as you do people from our own country? Because, of course, in Britain, we have so many different dialects, so many yeah. different regional accents, don't we? And, they, and that's the case abroad as well. I mean, think about America. But do you take equal pleasure from both? Oh, yeah. The, the character is is universal. So, yes, absolutely, absolutely, be it American movie stars, be it presidents, um, you know, utterly, yeah. Character is a universal thing. American movie stars, are there Are there any that you've been working on? Uh, let me try to think. So many people do the um, Robert De Niro's and, um, and, and, and others. I tend to, I tend to keep away from them, really. Um, I'm just trying to recall. I'm just trying to recall. I shall do. I... I suppose um, someone who's appeared in American movies, although he's not American himself, I quite like uh, Russell Crowe, who you know when he when he gives us received pronunciation, it's um, it's in this sort of manner. And then you know his own Antipodean twang is uh, you know that kind of um, manner across this way, across there like that. Um, yes, it is. Character is universal. You must find it rather odd that Donald Trump, and I can't imagine you're a huge fan. But when it sort of seems clear that he he's going to be running again, you know, when he when it when it's now looking like it's going to be Trump against Biden, part two, and there, there, there must be some part of you that rather relishes that because he's, he's such a good Trump. I wonder how much to relish it. I really do because I can remember that period of time when he was this character who would not go away. You had Trump, you had Brexit. They would not go away. They were permanent. And that was very, you, you hankered for something different. Um, and just the utter kind of, no matter, no matter what he does, no matter what he's done, he will always find a way to be the victim. They're trying, it's a witch hunt. It's a very bad witch hunt. All I'm trying to do is protect you from the people who would seek to destroy our country. That is what I'm trying to do. I am being victimized. Support me, my dear base. All of you people, all of you people. <laughs> it's to what extent we relish it. I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. Let, let's see what level of um, let's see what Trumpian levels may follow. Of course, it, it may not come to that. You don't miss George W. Bush. Um, he, yes, he, he comes back in a in a nostalgic sort of way. 
I mean, he's still well known enough, and occasionally he will uh, sort of head up and make a and make a speech in this fashion. And um, it reminds me of the difference between the voice of George W. and the voice of uh, George Bush Senior. If you uh, if you begin with George Bush Senior, read my lips. No new taxes. You know, John Major is a superb leader. And take that voice and sort of compress it a little bit and add strengthen the gravity, crush it down a little bit and bring in the sense of uh, some kind of an unsure Disney character who's amused that he even got the job. <laughs> and then you have George W. Similar but relatified. Just fantastic. I love the way that you think it through. When John Major was popping up from time to time during the Brexit debate mm -hmm. you must have been taken back to a time when you did him quite regularly yes indeed it was a couple of times on dead ringers when he he came back and it's like welcoming in uh you know an old uh an old visitor you know from um you know from 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 long ago from a past chapter and it's it's rather nice yes sometimes when you have to start it again i'm imagining him in my imagination now you imagine the large glasses you imagine the top bit which sort of acts like a mud guard for the words, a mud flap for the words. And um, you've got to make sure that, uh, <laughs> you know, you've got to make sure that you stay with the John Major because if you make it a bit too aggressive, then it goes into Michael Caine. They are, they are very close voice neighbours and it doesn't take long to go from one to the other. I'm trying to remember who pointed that out first. It might have been Alistair, Alistair McGowan. I think he noticed that, the, the voice neighbours between the John Major and Michael Caine. Michael Caine I was on stage with a few years back in a London theatre and he was the most magnificent storyteller. He was so funny. He had the audience absolutely wrapped and even was happy to do an impression of himself. <laughs> this is Michael Caine doing Michael Caine. I, lo I love it when he does that, when he, um, when he, uh, he notices because, you know, you never think that that's how you talk. But, of course, I suppose if you just take it up a gear and go into that, at the carriage, I suppose. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I spoke like that in the 60s, I remember. Not not so much now. It's a bit, bit more relaxed these days, I suppose. You go to these, um, you know, award ceremonies where you're given a lifetime achievement or whatever it is. And you just, they play the video 10 minutes and you watch yourself age. I don't go to no more. <laughs> <laughs> he does this this lovely thing about um, which eye you use in a, in a scene. We can perhaps recreate it in this Zoom call. Okay, I am looking at you with my left eye to your right eye because the camera is to my right. If I go the other way, then it's much more profile. You'll engage better with the audience if they can see more of you. So do it the first way. <laughs> the, the, listening to you talk, you start to see or hear relationships between different people or different different accents entirely. I mean, you could almost go from a Michael Caine to a South African accent. I mean, there are relationships, aren't there, that I imagine that you spot and you pick out and you enjoy the differences and the similarities in. Yes, exactly. The celebrating um, celebrating difference and celebrating uh, beautiful juxtapositions, unlikely juxtapositions, are always um, are always a lovely thing. Um, I, <laughs> I once did a, a routine of Frank Bruno as a, an expert on butterflies. You know, if you take his tone and character and sort of like talk about, you know, a lot of British butterflies, you know, from February you'll start to get the small tortoiseshell. You know, a lot of them have been hibernating and on a, on a sunny day in February you might see them nice and early and they'll be all the way through 
November when they start hibernating again. And the Red Admiral, you know, very, you know, one of the aristocrat butterflies, you know, from the peak of the summer. Its Latin name is Vanessa Atalanta, you know, and that's like a nice Latin name, not one of them actresses or whatever. <laughs> Extraordinary. Now, tell me this. Are there voices, are there accents, are there personalities that you find it difficult to do? Do you ever give up on someone? David Cameron was always one that you, you, you know, one does it for as long as one needs to. Then, you know, because it's, you know, fairly anodyne and just generic posh and that kind of sensibility of wanting the interview to end as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, you, you would always be <laughs> the next character. And then when the script moved along and then William Hague was there, you'd think, well, thank goodness for that. Um, yeah, some of, the, some of the more anodyne politicians are the ones where you, you do them for as long as is necessary, the shortest amount of time, and then, and then you're happy when the next characters come along. Does that mean you're still working on your Sakir Starmer? Because, I mean, he could be around for a while, John. Well, he could. He could. Uh, Duncan Wisby does a, a wonderful Keir Starmer, uh, almost as if he's a slightly bewildered geography supply teacher who needs to be a bit more bullish about things and grab that sense of the big moments and capitalise on them, but sort of just lets it sort of slip away a bit, you know. Um, but yes, I think people find his uh, steadfast efficiency quite reassuring, I suppose. But uh, yeah, Duncan Wisby does um, does a very amusing uh, Keir Starmer. <laughs> Usually the sketch is uh, Angela Rayner. You know, don't buy Deborah, you know, or Naomi. Like, oh, come on, Keir, sort it out. Oh, look, you <laughs> that kind of uh, where uh, where Angela Rayner is sort of you know, trying to jostle him into action. Before we come back to, to accents, to, to finish with, to, to impersonations, impressions, just give us a sense of what your professional life is like these days, John. I mean, I can imagine you're on stage a lot. You've got, you're doing audio books, aren't you? And you're, t- tell, yeah. us, tell us what you're up to. What, what, what life is like. I mean, I can also imagine it's very changeable. So you'll be doing different projects and, or juggling lots of projects at the same time. Yes, it can be. Um, I'm, I'm quite sort of, I'm quite sort of mercurial and disorganised at the best of times, um, but but it's yes, particularly so in the last few years. Uh, over the um, from about last April until December, I was doing my one man show about Les Dawson, which I loved. So that was um, there was all the, the weeks of rehearsals. Then there was the Edinburgh Festival run. Then there was the uh, the tour of about twenty eight shows. So that took up a a big old chunk of time. Um, hopefully I'll be doing that again next year. A lot of audio books as well. I, I've just finished, well, I say just last February, I completed the um, the Men at Arms series, uh, the Nightwatch series of Terry Pratchett, uh, eight volumes of those. Terry Pratchett's imagination is a beautiful thing. And when you're in a little grey room in Croydon reading an audio book from, you know, three days a week from October to February, it's quite nice to have uh, Sir Terry Pratchett's imagination uh, to, to keep you company. The February that's just gone, are we talking about? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, I, I interviewed the late, great Sir Terry Pratchett from that same five minutes with series a while ago. Oh, oh. Yeah. oh I must look that up. Yeah, it's, I think you can still find it on YouTube. Oh, I'll go and have a look at that. I, I love meeting him one time. Um, I, I was taking part in a Sky at Night episode and... 
in Patrick Moore's garden, all set under a clear sky for a total eclipse of the moon. There was Brian May, there was um, Sir Patrick Moore, and there, that unmistakable silhouette of the of the hat, the beard, and the long flowing coat, looking upwards to the stars. There was Sir Terry Pratchett, as the moon gradually went red, as uh, as it was eclipsed into the shadow of the earth, um, and it was a scene that. Terry Pratchett could have written himself, really. And there he was in the middle of it. Not many, are, not many people are recognisable just from their silhouette, but Terry Pratchett certainly was, and everything else so magnificently. Who's giving you the most enjoyment at the moment? Is there someone you're working? Because in between all, all of these different projects, I imagine you're still working on your impressions, aren't you? Yes, yes. Wondering who um, we've got the next Dead Ringers series coming up in in June through to July. Uh, so wondering who will come up there as a regular. Perhaps Jordan Peterson. Maybe a little more from Jordan Peterson. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what the data sets out. Um, uh, yeah, we'll have to see what uh, how Joe Biden is, uh, how he's how he's running. You know, a lot of the time because he's very steady in this way. Um, sometimes we, we haven't done sketches on him because... And it kind of takes up too much of the time. You could do one sketch and that'd be half the show gone. But you know, the wonderful night sky, those images of the James Webb telescope showing the universe as it was forming 13 and a half billion years ago. I was just a teenager back then. <laughs> but you've always got to keep moving on and finding the new characters and we'll see who comes next. So final question, I'm wrapping two into one, I'm cheating, but you haven't really told us because I haven't asked you, how you go about starting a new impression and, and how conscious it is. Do you go out there and say, okay, this person's important at the moment, they're big, I've got to do them. And, or or do, do you just find yourself watching TV, listening to radio and naturally, organically starting to do them? And which of all these people that you've done in your life, and this is a terrible question, it's like people ask me who's my favourite person I've ever interviewed, but if there's one person that you had to continue impersonating professionally for the rest of your life to the exclusion of everyone else, who would that be? So a two-part question. Yes, uh, to, to gain the characters, to sort of get to know them, just simply watch as much as you can. Um, don't go looking for anything, particularly in the beginning. You never know what you might notice. You never know what might just reach towards you. So just keep, uh, just keep looking through. Uh, and and just let it form like a crystal. Let all the parts amalgamate and join together. Um, the voice of them the, above all the others, I wonder. Having having portrayed him in the show, I, I think I would say Les Dawson, because of well, it's a wonderfully rich and characterful voice with great depth, and a beautiful attitude, and his use of language so loquacious and so so full of glorious use of words and poetry. As I gaze up to observe the majesty of the night sky, a purple vault fretted with a myriad points of light as the stars glistened, just like diamonds cast across black velvet, with Jupiter, Mars and Saturn forever festooned in their orbital majesty. I watched in awe as the crescent moon ascended the horizon like an amber chariot, towards the zenith of the heavens to the ebony void of infinite space. As I gazed up to observe this majestic sight, I thought to myself, you know, I really must put a roof on this lavatory. <laughs> With use of language like that, I could do Les Dawson forever.
So people might be able to see you next year on stage doing Les Dawson, doing the Les Dawson show. Yes, we'll have another run of that, I think. Yeah, towards the latter end of next year, all being well. And they can get their hands on your Sir Terry Pratchett audio books? Yes, I think they, uh, I think it's May the 25th that uh, that they, they appear with uh, with Penguin. So yes, May the 25th. Very uh, exciting. They shall materialise. John, it's always a pleasure. It's always so much fun listening to you, watching you and interacting with you. It's a real privilege. So thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. It's a great pleasure, Matthew. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, yeah, longer than the five minutes. And uh, as always, a great, great pleasure. Thank you.